0: This morning is found in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and this is the seventh and final message in this series. Jesus speaks to His church, and in each one of these letters we uh, hear a word of rebuke, uh, sometimes outright condemnation, from the mouth of the Lord to His people to these seven churches that were located in Asia. Uh, Five of the seven get some words of commendation, but... uh, Mostly criticism. And uh, probably the worst church of all is the church that he speaks to today, which is the church of Laodicea. So listen now to God's word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation... "...I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked." Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. The one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of God to the people of God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, come in these next moments and do your work on us. We welcome your work of conviction of sin. We ask you to convince us of the truth, to help us see ourselves more clearly that we might love Jesus more dearly. Yes, come, Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the uh, most unpleasant memories um, in my marriage to Connie, who's, by the way, is in Portland this weekend with the grandsons, doing a favor for the son and the daughter-in-law who are in North Carolina uh, getting some arrangements made for their new house. They're moving back to the East Coast in August. Praise be to God. But um, anyway, one of, one of my most uh, disagreeable memories in my marriage to Connie occurred over 40 years ago when we both were violently ill with a stomach flu at the same time. Now, we were so sick, in fact, that, that we could do nothing to help the other cope or clean up. And that's all I'm going to say. I will say that the most horrible aspect of this experience was how many times we threw up. I don't think I've ever been that sick in almost 63 years of living. It was horrendous. Anyway, I can't think of anything that I hate more than vomiting. Can you? I mean, that's pretty gross. And you're thinking, where is this going? The preacher is talking about vomiting. And I'm not done. Okay? Um, The look... The smell, the taste of vomit, it's just awful, isn't it? It's just terrible. Only a dog likes his own vomit. That's from the Proverbs, by the way. Um, I think on a different subject and for a different reason, I think Connie threw up every single morning she was pregnant with Jared. All nine months of her pregnancy. And as badly as I felt for her, I just hated hearing her gag in the bathroom in the morning. We were on an airplane flight recently out of Lexington, and there was a little boy with his mom sitting across, across the aisle in one row up from us. And we were about to pull away from the gate, and he threw up. The lady that was sitting directly behind them summons the flight attendant, and she looked like she was about to throw up. And she said may I please move to the back of the plane? And I almost said, please let me go with her. It was really bad. And they came in their hazmat suits, their gloves, their mask, cleaning up. And I didn't realize it, but there is an FAA rule that requires that if you get sick on a plane before it leaves the gate, you got to get off. Isn't that a good rule? That's a very good rule. On a much more serious note, uh, a husband told me last year that after he discovered that his wife was having an affair with someone, he read her text messages, he said he went into the bathroom and he threw up. And it's been many years ago that I got a call very early one Sunday morning from a parishioner who was in the county jail. He had been addressed... uh, Uh, arrested on public drunkenness uh, in the wee hours of that morning after a particularly good UK game on Saturday night. And um, I picked him up, paid the fee, and and as soon as we got in the driveway, he stepped out in the yard, and guess what? Yeah, he threw up. Yeah, throwing up is something that we don't talk about, especially in church, right? So this is probably the first time you've heard a sermon about vomiting. Probably. And here's an interesting fact. Rats will eat anything. Okay? But they don't vomit. Isn't that weird? Just threw that in as an extra. So... (laughs) So you're you're probably asking me at this point, okay, what is this message about? Is this a message about vomit? And in a way, it is. As I was studying this passage out of Revelation chapter 3, a passage I've never preached from. I heard it preached from almost every year when an evangelist came to our little rural United Methodist Church... Shady Grove, where Connie and I courted and attended even after we got married for a couple of years. Uh, They always talked about, you know, the lukewarm Christian and our need to get hot, to get fired up, to have passion for Christ. Well, as I was studying this passage this week, the Holy Spirit seemed to say to me, Greg, I want everybody to get a little nauseous Sunday, I want them to think deeply about this issue of of being so sickening uh, in their discipleship, in their behavior, in the way they are failing to live a passionate life for Christ, that they're just going to get a little nauseous, spiritually speaking. You remember how in the Gospels, Jesus had compassion for the crowds that followed him. On more, more than one occasion, the writers say in both Luke and Matthew that, that he um, had compassion, which in the Greek means that his stomach was tied in knot, His bowels were hurting. He was so sick. Here in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to, to a different group. He's not talking to the twelve. He's talking to a church one of his own churches uh, that lived in Laodicea. And the scripture says that he was very upset with them. He had nothing good to say to this church at all. Verse 16 says, Jesus was on the verge of throwing up. Now, we have many words in English for this. Uh, Gag, puke, barf, hurl. The King James Version version uses a word that's pretty tame. It says spew. I think the New Revised Standard Version that we just read says spit. I will spit you out of my mouth. This verb occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. Only in Revelation 3, and according to A.T. Robertson, it means to reject with extreme disgust. Now this is describing Jesus' attitude toward this particular congregation. And the imagery here would have been penetratingly powerful for this congregation. The assumption is when we hear this passage read, uh, that, that Jesus would rather have his church hot, full of passionate, committed disciples, or dead and unfeeling, which is cold, rather than a complacent, self-sufficient church that is lukewarm. I thought Charlie's illustration with the tea was a really good one. You'll, you'll be pleased to know that your associate pastor drinks hot tea. He is hot for Jesus, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like cold on ice Diet Coke. But, but this, this makes perfect sense to us. The notion that Jesus wants you to be with Him and not against Him. Not sitting on the fence. I remember growing up in the South hearing that the only thing in the middle of the road is a yellow line and a dead skunk. Did you ever hear that? Well, this is this attitude of being wishy-washy, non-committal, uh, non-committal or, or uh, less than enthused. About the Savior. Now, Laodicea would have heard this passage differently than a lot of a lot of us have heard it. Had it preached to us, uh, this city was a large place, probably 150,000 people strong. Uh, archaeologists estimate the population of places by by looking at the ruins of these cities centuries later and it was located in the Lycus River Valley in what we call modern-day Turkey and alongside Laodicea were two other cities. They formed a triangle of sorts not unlike Lexington, Georgetown and Midway. The Midway equivalent was probably Colossi. Colossae was a fairly small city that 30 years earlier in AD 60 have been devastated by a massive her- earthquake, which also severely damaged Laodicea. Um, the other city in this triangle is Hierapolis, and this particular city, also very large and prosperous, was, was located uh, at, at a mountainside at the foot of a hill, and it had these wonderful hot mineral springs. Even to this day, I'm told, that people go to that area in Turkey because it's believed now, even then, that there's health benefits from just bathing in those hot waters. Now the water supply in Colossi was very different. It came off this 8,400 foot high mountain, part of this uh, really imposing mountain range on one end of the valley that's snow-covered year-round. And these wonderful cold water streams of of pure, uh, sweet-tasting water came uh, off of those mountains. So uh, Colossae had a reputation for really good water, but Laodicea had neither the hot mineral springs or the cold mountain streams. They piped their water from the mountains in terracotta pipes that ran about six miles underground. Now archaeologists have found that on the inside of these pipes there are heavy deposits of lime, kind of like the pipes in Georgetown, right? Um, And the water, by the time it reached the city, uh, was lukewarm. Uh, It had been cold as it had come off the mountain, but it was lukewarm and it was gritty with these lime deposits. In his commentary on Revelation, Craig Keener writes, Jesus thus finds the church in Laodicea to be other than what he desires. In today's English, he is telling the self-satisfied church, I want water that will refresh me, but you remind me instead of water you always complain about. You make me want to puke. Now, ancient text from from that period tell us that the water was good in Laodicea for dyeing textiles, something they were famous for and it was good for flushing toilets, but not much else. One writer said Laodicea was reasonably well known for its tepid and revolting water, which almost everyone found repulsive. But, but in spite of this bad water, Laodicea was a proud prosperous community that had actually refused aid from the Emperor Nero after that that earthquake I referred to in AD 60. They didn't want any FEMA funds from the federal government. They said, no, we will take care of ourselves. And and here, 30-something years later, it remains a proud self-sufficient community that is very wealthy And that attitude, that cultural attitude had apparently also infiltrated the church. They were proud of their distinctive black woolen textiles in Laodicea, which is in contrast to these beautiful white robes that Jesus is offering them. They were proud of their medical school. And there was an eye ointment that was produced in that region where the blind came for treatments. Jesus referenced this salve. That, that He offers so that they will no longer be spiritually blind. And then He tells them to buy gold from Him, riches from Him that are spiritual in nature. Jesus uses these sources of pride in this community to expose their extreme Poverty. In fact, the word used here could not be stronger. Jesus says they are wallowing in grinding spiritual poverty. Listen to verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, no one wants to hear Jesus speak harshly to us, do we? Just like no one wants to hear a sermon on vomit, I mean, uh, we 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 want this kind of therapeutic Jesus, who's a counselor and a comforter, who reassures us, who loves us unconditionally, um, who kind of like a good grandpa, just you know, embraces you, tells you everything's going to be okay. Uh, But when Jesus rebukes these complacent, self-satisfied Christians, we don't need to miss his motive. It sounds harsh, but listen to what verse 19 says. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. My son and daughter-in-law are very tolerant of Connie and I being a bit permissive and extravagant in our ways of loving our grandsons i mean they are accustomed to presence every time we visit and they they know that they get to do special things they get to watch more tv they get to stay up late they get more treats the list goes on and on i mean we don't totally spoil them but we come close and laura tolerates that um The parents are the ones that are supposed to discipline the child. And it's because of of love that we rebuke, we correct, and we discipline our children. And we've all known children that have not been disciplined, and nobody wants to be around them, right? They're rotten. They're spoiled. They're out of control. And so Jesus says, you need to be disciplined. Disciplined. Because you've lost your way. You have lost me in your journey of faith. But then he invites his church over for dinner. And and as Charlie told the children, the the Warner Salmon photo that's probably in every rural United Methodist church I've ever been in, the one of Jesus knocking at the door... uh, he, he showed the children, reminded the children that there's no knob or latch on the outside of that door because we are the ones that have to welcome Him in. It's always the, the choice that we make in response to His grace. And he, he, he will chase us down. He will love us. He will pursue us. But He will not make us love Him back. Yes, there are times when we, the church, make Jesus want to vomit. There's no question about it. I think we make Him want to vomit when we value things, material things, either personally or corporately as a church over people. I mean, facility gets worn and dirty and things break and that's good. In my mind, that's a sign that people are are wearing the place out. And that's what we want, right? We, We can paint walls, we can fix broken things. Um, But what God wants us to do is is to bring His grace grace to full measure in the lives of people so that He may give them a new makeover, create them again, um, restore them and fix them and heal them in a way that uh, no one else can. We, we make Jesus want to vomit, I think, when we lose sight of our own spiritual poverty and self-sufficiency. You know, that hymn, Just As I Am, has been sung thousands upon thousands of times at Billy Graham crusades and in Baptist churches <laughs> and, and in a lot of Methodist churches uh, at the end of a service when an invitation is given. It's that invitation hymn, that classic Song that reminds us that we are sinners in need of God's grace. We need a Savior. And we need to be reminded during Lent especially of just how desperately we need, needy we are for God. And then I think we make Him want to vomit when we find every possible excuse imaginable for not being a fully devoted follower of Jesus, of not placing Him as the number one priority of our lives. We make Him want to vomit when we lose our passion for Him and for His mission for making disciples right here in Scott County and beyond uh, for the transformation of this world. Now verse 19 says that the solution to this lukewarm state, this pathetic state that the church of Laodicea is in is to be earnest and Repent. We've seen this word repent in several of these letters. A call to change directions. But this word earnest is is Jesus' way of, of, of saying, Shake off your complacency. Recover your zeal and your passion for me. And a passionate faith is not necessarily an emotional one. Some of us are wired that way, and I'm one of them. That, that can be moved to tears and even laughter because of my faith in, in Christ. But some of us are more reserved and self-contained. But you can still be passionate, because passionate has to do with the intensity of your devotion and the depth of your commitment. And it starts with a lifestyle of repentance, because lots of things and other people get in the way of Jesus every single day. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. It happens to me. This is the end of this series of messages, and I'm, I'm glad to be done with it, frankly. It's, it, I envisioned it to be a lot more pleasant than it was. It's been kind of painful seeing all of the deficiencies of the church in the first century mirrored in the churches of the 21st century. I can't imagine, however, a more important text for the beginning of Lent at the end of this series than, than this one. And so what I exhort you to do today is just um, at, as we begin this journey of Lent together over the next 40 days, I exhort you to seek Jesus fresh and anew. Pray daily uh, and not, not just in the morning, maybe at noon. Uh, And also at the end of your day, spend time in the Word of God. We have a group, and it's I think all women at this point, who are doing Bible journaling once a month. And they're getting together and and through the use of art they are illustrating the Scriptures in these special Bibles that have wide margins. And I've already seen pictures of some of what these women are doing. It's wonderful. It's amazing. It's a a fresh way, a unique way to get into the Word of God and, and, and make it your very own. Search out ways to love and serve others during Lent. And, you know, it doesn't have to be something necessarily, something really big like committing to a mission trip, that, that we'll be doing in June. But look for ways to serve others, to be available to people that ordinarily you might not be near or close to. People that, that have a need that you know you can meet. And it may only take a few minutes, half an hour a day. But commit yourself to a life of service. And then remember, remember throughout this, this period of Lent to cling to the cross to remember the sacrifice of Jesus every single day. If you were here for the Ash Wednesday service, which by the way, we had a phenomenal turnout this year. It's just the most ever. I think 175 people was my count. It included a lot of children and some of our youth. But there was a a little clinging cross, a pocket cross that we gave to anyone that wanted one. If you don't have one of these and would like one, see me after the service and I'll get you one. But they're made of olive wood in uh, Bethlehem um, in the uh, Palestinian territories, and they're wonderful, and they just fit in the palm of your hand, and you can carry that in your pocket and keep it with you and just have it as a reminder to pray and, and to thank God for the cross. And then finally, let me just say, forgive those that have hurt you I tell you, it is the great burden of my life as a pastor to see people find freedom from the abuse and the pain and the hurts of their lives and to truly forgive. And forgiveness is an act, but it's also a process. And it it has to be done over and over again in some cases. But, But I see so many people in bondage, in bondage to unforgiveness, to bitterness, in anger and even rage towards others. And it's poisoning their souls because they will not let go. Pray this prayer every day. Come, Holy Spirit, come. When your eyes open in the morning, when you lay down at night, pray for the Holy Spirit to come and to be at work in your heart. Um, One of the stanzas of that beloved invitation hymn, Just As I Am, was inspired by the words of Revelation 3. And I close with these. Just as I am, poor wretched blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, yea, all I need in thee to find, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Would you pray with me? Lord, we we pray that as we come to the altar, humble ourselves, repent of our pride and our self-sufficiency. We pray that we would remember that uh, the way up is always down. And that Jesus does promise to His followers, to His disciples, He promises them in the end that they will sit on a throne with Him. We pray, Lord, that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and to us as individual disciples of Jesus. And as we come to this altar this morning for Holy Communion, that we truly would open up our lives, our souls, to the nourishment, the spiritual nourishment of Your grace in the bread, and in the cup of Holy Communion. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.